Welcome to the second series of The Man Who Was Scared to Death. In this audio documentary, I talk to people who work and spend time in the presence of death on a daily basis in order to help me come to terms with my eventual demise. In the first episode, I meet John Waite, a tour guide at London's famous Highgate Cemetery and former BBC journalist, as he puts all of my fears of not existing into some stark perspective. Okay, we're just walking through. Which gate is this? This is the West Cemetery. This is the original cemetery. Um, in its day, a sensational place because up until this opened in the 1830s, when you died in Britain, you went into a grave. That was all that happened to you, all that could. Um, cremation was against the law, wouldn't be legal for 100 years. And this man, Stephen Geary, comes up with this idea of private cemeteries. And this was his baby. He landscaped the top of Highgate Hill into a city of the dead with its own, with its own uh, streets. You can see we're walking along one now. With its own carriageways and with its own buildings. Obviously, a city of the dead doesn't need shops and offices. The buildings were an Egyptian avenue of crypts. Uh, a Greek circle, Roman catacombs. Now, these things no one had any idea about. This is before photographs, before you went to Egypt on holiday. Well, what, what, year, what years are we talking about? We're talking 1839. It opened 1836. He started mm. landscaping it. So it was a sensational place. Where did he get his um, inspiration? I mean, is he a traveller? Would he, would he gone around? I, I, th- I think he'd seen... Something similar in Paris, the famous Père Lachaise, opened in 1804, and he thought, well, if it can work there, it can work here. Persuading the British authorities to allow him was a different matter. Uh, You know, people were very religious. This smacked of making profit, which it was. It was debated hotly in Parliament, and an Act of Parliament had to be passed to uh, allow him to, to open up for business in 1839. So how exactly would one have been buried here in Highgate Cemetery back then? Well... Um, Obviously dying first. Uh, how much money did you have was basically uh, the rule. It was an Anglican cemetery, so you're supposed to believe in the Church of England, but uh, arrangements were made, and plus there's an area up by the back fence of unconsecrated ground where non-believers... Muslims, Jews, Catholics, <laughs> Methodists, you know, anybody who didn't believe in, in the Church of England, they could be buried. Uh, uh, so how many people like rest here now? I mean, I presume people aren't buried here anymore, or am I wrong in thinking that? There's 300 um, plots left, mostly on the other side, the east side, the more recent side. Uh, about 100 for full-sized burials about 204 cremated remains. They, selling those plots is our most valuable asset uh, because th- this is a charity. We receive no money from the government or the council, so we have to raise the money to keep it going, and selling those plots uh, brings in the most money that we receive. This is the, this is the Michael Grave here. There's Georgios Paniatou or Paniotou, because he was Greek mm-hmm. Cypriot, his mother there, and that's his sister. So these are the three uh, Michael Graves you see, beautifully looked after. Fresh flowers every couple of days. I mean, really, really, they they attend 
to this grave and his memory. And then next door is, uh, is Lucy and Freud. So, um, and all, all of this space here, he's in, you can see that's his, um, but all of this space here has been reserved by the Freuds, so successive generations will go in. So you, you buy a plot, as it were, rather than a individual great, or most people would try and buy a plot to keep their family close together? Well, the reason that Parliament allowed this to be built in the first place was that London, at the turn of the 19th century, ran out of grave space. It was a medieval city that was already overpopulated. Uh, the first UK census in 1801 showed it had 600,000 people, far more than it was ever meant to have, and that increased by a million in the next 20 years. So think of it. You could only be buried. All the burial spaces filled up. Literally, people were being uh, put under floorboards in public buildings. And so this is why uh, the idea of some private cemeteries around London, deep in the countryside, which this was, miles from London, uh, Highgate was in those days, uh, th this was the response, and this is why permission was given. Um, and, you, and because there was never going to be grave space in London, you didn't want a grave, you wanted a, a grave space that you knew as succeeding members of your family died, that's where they would go. So they could, they would build a grave space of any size for you, to, you know, uh, uh, how much could you afford? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so there are, there are grave spaces here for, you know, 8, 10, 12, um, but these days they're, they're much smaller affairs. So moving on, John, so the reason why uh, I'm meeting up with you, I mean, would you mind quickly telling us, you know, your, your role here at Highgate Cemetery? Yeah, I, I've been coming here um, as a volunteer for many years, but what happened, the full story is, I came here as a trainee reporter when this place um, reopened. The company that ran it had fallen into hard times. Basically, the place was locked up and not operating as a cemetery. I'm talking 50 years went by when all sorts of damage was done. It was getting into a terrible uh, state. Um, grave robbers were getting in and stealing some of the corpses. Those they left behind. Sorry, what, what, when were we talking about with the grave robbers? 1970s. Wow, okay and uh, local children were playing with the corpses. So, so I came here as a young reporter, and I was very taken with the place, very different to how it is today, nearly 50 years later. But 10 years later, so it was 1986, it became a charity. Sorry, it was 1976, it became a charity. 10 years later, terrible tragedy, our first child died. And, you know, it it's the, it is the most appalling thing, I can assure you. Death, of course, comes to us all, and it's sort of natural. It's certainly inevitable, but uh, to have your own child die. And I looked at our municipal cemetery in Hounslow, and I just thought, no, you know, I want someone more special. So she's buried here in the east, and that's when I started to get very much more involved in the place. And I've by and large been coming ever since and since I retired in 2015 I've been coming you know every week. Well the reason that um, it's delightful to meet you John the reason I kind of wanted to get in touch was to share you know my thoughts about death and existence and you know and hopefully find out more about yours you know whether or not working in an environment where obviously death literally surrounds you makes a difference to your view in it um, essentially you know as, as listeners will know you know I've I've 
been fearful of it's more about not existence than the, the act of death i don't think i'm fearful of the way i die or, or, or the pain or anything like that it's certainly just the idea that you will never exist again i'm an atheist so it should be said you know i don't believe in an afterlife although i love it to be true funny enough we overheard a conversation coming into this cemetery about the potential for ghosts which i'm sure we'll go into but for me the if i sort of saw a ghost i'd be incredibly happy just to know that there's something after death and that's all it, it's the finite element of of not existing and then the world going on around you uh, i too i i have one child who's now going to be 20 in uh, in uh, on sunday he's at bristol university now and i think the last time i recorded these he was only 16 um and that has absolutely helped with my fear of, of not existing because obviously you know there is some linear and not i'm not the family ties but just the knowledge that he didn't exist before and now suddenly snaps into existence and i think that's the one thing that keeps me going is what's to say that you won't snap into either another existence because you know before you were born so that's kind of where i stand and unfortunately it's something that you know i thought about pretty much every morning every every evening it tends to happen you know I wake up i'm so damn happy and then i suddenly remember death exists so if you can imagine just that you know each morning remembering which i presume you know is, is probably something that you might have gone through as well with, with the loss of your child well um i think we're diametrically opposed in our views <laughs> in that i am scared of dying the process i do not look forward to a long and uh, you know prolonged um, agony ridden death that would be horrible i'm glad to say if this is if glad is the right word my father dropped dead my latest relative to die my lovely cousin norman dropped dead we have a history of dropping dead <laughs> in our family which i hope extends to me i'm not bothered about what happens next because like you I'm an atheist and I don't think anything does and um, there's no point in worrying about it if it doesn't we shall find out by and by well it is true yeah I mean there is an element of that and obviously there's a lot of um, studies being done you know certainly near-death experiences was something that interested me for a while we're looking at the sort of shared experience of a lot of people and if you take out the the people who who sort of claim you know this whole white light thing but it kind of makes sense that your brain obviously is programmed to accept the slowing down and you know when you feel very ill the first thing you want to do is hide yourself away and go to bed so you, you know it, it might well be similar to that and that's obviously nothing to be particularly scared about it's just the after and it's from the conscious to the unconscious that, that really well, I, you know it, I can't find an answer to it and obviously I doubt I ever will so you know I've made it my mission to, to talk to people about it especially people who you know, who, who work in and around it, and also, you know, people who, who have similar fears. I have just had, within the last year, my first grandchild. and there was Congratulations. A, and I don't know if you heard, there was a little boing, boing, boing. That was my phone going off, because this very morning, Phil, she has taken, she's 11 months, her first step. Oh, wow. Uh, there's much excitement. I'm going to go and see her later on. She only lives in Tottenham, around the corner from me. Um, this has introduce this grandchild a huge new element to me i'm going to get emotional now because i i can't imagine not knowing how it turns out no. you know with my own children i've grown up with them they're all grown up now and and somehow i didn't it didn't think of that but now I am at the realization you won't be you won't be here you can't read the later chapters of the story and and that is hurting me bewildering me intimidating and frightening me far more than what happens to me <laughs> it's what happens to them so yeah well that's that yeah i mean 
you, you're absolutely right. And a lot of people I've spoken to, and not in a, a malicious way, but you know, undoubtedly my my obsession, shall we call it, is a selfish thing. I, I remember, I think I mentioned to you that I did see several counsellors because it, it's it sort of morphed into a depression as well because it's clearly something you can never solve. But I remember one particular person said, well, you know what, ultimately, what's your, you know, what would be your ultimate goal? And I immediately said, well, I want to live forever. You know, and let, we can go through the, you know, the, the consequences of such a thing. But then she said, okay, so you've, you have a son? I was like, yes, he was about 11 at the time. Going, would he live forever? I was like, well, of course. And, and who else? And it started to unravel when I was thinking, well, of course, I can't take everyone. And then you're suddenly talking about, you know, this sort of selfish act of taking a few people with you and then the rest of the world burns or whatever. And I, and I realised, you know, we are part of a world and part of a society. And you're right. And that's definitely changed my way of thinking after speaking to lots of people that it is about the others. I mean, that's what death is about. It's the people that it leaves, you know, it leaves behind. And you want to cram as much in as possible, I presume. It's early in the morning, so the cemetery is nice and quiet. Yes. Oh, is this where everyone would be going? This is the, this is the, as it were, the main drag. Yes. Most of the tours come up here, not least for, for, for graves like this one. Oh, this okay. is the grave of Alexander Litvinenko, the Russian murder victim. Is it really? Wow. But I brought you here because you see on the top of that grave are stones. People leave stones. Now, as far as I know, the Litvinenkos are not Jewish, um, but this is a Jewish idea, mm -hmm. um, and I love it, because I've, I've found out what it means. S certain Jewish people believe that you die twice. You die once physically, mm -hmm. and then you f f die the second and final time when the last memory of you is forgotten. And leaving stones here shows that you are still alive in the memories of other people. And that reassures me, when I die, when you die, when we all die, we won't die. And not immediately, as long as someone bears something of us in their hearts and their minds, then, you know, we are immortal and eternal. Well, you see, we're getting to the real vagaries of my mind. You know, I'm still, I still pretend to myself that I'm not going to die. Have you, how's your idea of death changed over the years? Well... For a start, Phil, I'm some, coming up 72. You look very well for it, I was going to say. <laughs> well, I don't sometimes feel it. And the idea that you know, you'd go on forever, let me tell you, as an old man, that would not be a boon. It wouldn't. I, I do get tired. I, I, my brain doesn't work. You know, you know when you've, you know, you're moving on to the next stage, which is slowing down and basically packing up. So, no, I've never wanted to live forever well i suppose if you live forever in this fairyland you could choose what age you were and you wouldn't choose to be 72 you'd choose to be 22 or whatever but no i i don't i don't um i, I don't go with that as i say I, I can somehow park this somebody said to me one of my colleagues at the bbc many years ago he was much older than me and he was thinking as i am now but then I, this was 50 years ago i was much younger and he said to me where death is, where death is, I am not, because I'm here, death's there. Where, where, when I am not, you know, um, then that's where death is. And so the two of us, we never overlap. We are always distinct. So I don't think about death because we, it will never overlap. And I took some comfort from that. Yeah. Well... That's your, but I mean, working, sorry, I think we've talked about this before, but you've been volunteering here for quite a while. Yes. Um, 
you know, being around this kind of environment, you know, obviously gravestones, you know, the, the buried, and then people coming to see either their loved ones or, or coming to look at the, the, the more famous graves. Does it alter your perception of, of death? You know, do you do you think it has a calming influence, or you know, does being surrounded by it suddenly bring it all to the forefront of your mind? I'm going to move us along to answer that question. You, you talk about being surrounded by death. Come into this crypt. We literally will be. Remember these very old good doors. Okay. Right, come in. Come in to the crypt of Salot Saloftus Octway. And you were talking about what's it like being surrounded by death? Well, here we are. So we're standing in a crypt and it has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine coffins in here. <laughs> but that's all you've got is an, uh, an underground room, rather a pleasant one, and certainly 200 years ago it would have been lovely, a beautiful floor. It's looking a bit, you know, the worst, but here are the coffins, enormous great Victorian coffins. As I mentioned, it doesn't look like it. Victorians are huge people. They weren't. Their coffins were. They went in hardwood coffins, then lead was put around, and then more wood. So that's why these are giant coffins. But you can see this is the Loftus Hotway family. Children, grandparents, youngsters. And I take some comfort from this. The whole family has been reunited in death. You know? So if. I, I, I do take comfort um, in the fact that families are together, that love endures, that, you know, geographically they're even close to one another, even when they no longer exist in a human form. There's a few spaces here. Can I assume that the descendants are still coming here, or is it the line has been... If the descendants who own this place, all the people who bought grave spaces here, their modern descendants own them. But we've lost touch with so many. But should they re-establish a connection, uh, you know, prove that they were the modern, then this would be theirs. This whole place, and it's huge, isn't it? This is, it's the biggest crypt by area. This would be theirs, and they can use all of these um, shelves which do, don't have um, coffins on. But as you say, there's plenty of space. You could have lots more people in here. Um, a few years ago, when it was the Dickens Bicentenary, we have many Dickens graves here, and the Dickens family came up to look at, at the family grave with the wife and, 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 the, and the parents of Dickens and the brother, and they said, oh, you know, so who, who, who do all these belong to? And we would say you, because you are the modern descendants, so to do as you wish. And no doubt, because there are spaces in them all I would think, I don't know, but I would think modern members of the Dickens family will go in there because, you know, it's the traditional family grave. That's amazing. I mean, this actually reminds me, I've only ever, and maybe this is part of my issue, but I've not been around death that often. I mean, both my parents are still, still going, um, you know, and I lost a lot of my grandparents when I was quite young, all my grandparents when I was quite young. So there's only one real person I've ever seen buried, as in... You know, they had an open coffin. Um, 
and it was an Irish tradition. You had to stay overnight with the body, and I was there for you know a shift, and it just seemed so surreal seeing a person that you know has been alive all your existence to suddenly lying there. You know, half of you expects them just to sit up. Um, and I'm getting that sort of same sort of feeling here. I mean, you know, what's been your, you know, as an adult, if you if experienced, you know, you're saying your friends, you know, friends and, and, and later family are passing, you know, how does it affect you? Does it, does it get worse each time? Do you think you get more used to it? There's nothing worse than having your child die. And um, I, I think, for example, my sadly now ex-wife, but I don't think she ever got over it. Um, and so if you can come to terms with that, no, I've seen all of my family die, my parents. And the curious thing for me, I don't know if it... But when I've looked into their coffins, um, they don't look like, you know, my mum or my dad or, you know, they, they look like a sort of, in some cases, rather poor wax you know, imitation. So you know that wh whoever they were, the people that you knew that they were, they, that's not what you're looking at. That's gone, that spirit, that, that person is somewhere else, is not in that box. Um, so you can believe, and lots of people do, good luck to them, that they've gone somewhere else. Um, I, I just think that that person has just gone. I used to be on the board here, the charity board, and sometimes we'd have late board meetings down in the chapel, and I would come up, walk all the way through the cemetery, because there's, there's a north gate, and it was nearer to my bus, the 271. I used to uh, unlock the gate and go through. So I walked through the cemetery. No, 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 no lights, of course. Pitch black, midnight or whatever it was, quite late anyway. And people said, oh, gosh, wasn't that spooky? <laughs> it was quite the reverse. I, I, I promise you, and this might sound mad, people are going to switch off now saying, oh, this, guy, this guy's bonkers. I felt almost as if the cemetery was a sentient being. I felt almost as if I could hear it breathing because uh, of all the sounds, the animals, you know, because there's a lot of animals in here. You can mm. imagine foxes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I imagined, I sort of felt that this place had been badly vandalised, left, overgrown, um, that was grave robbing. It had been abused for half a century. Now it's been taken over by people who love it. It's visited by people who love it. And it, it's content, you know. Uh, and I felt that. as a, Well, you can't be scared of ending up in a place like that. It would be lovely to think that you were part, well, a lot of people have that, you know, you, you, you decompose, you become part of the earth, you can part of the process, become a, the, the whole part of life and death. Shall we get out of here then? Let's get out of there. So uh, I mentioned, you know, one of the great things about a Victorian cemetery like this is the symbolism, you know, there's lots of symbolism. This guy, John, General Sir Loftus Otway, um, <clears throat> he was a, a big cheese um, army guy, uh, obviously commanded some of the armoured brigades because here's the symbolism for who he is. Those are the cannon stock. You see them? Ah, oh, they're looking at the railings, yeah. And the cannonballs. Oh. So as you go around, there's a lot of that, you know, sort of aiding you to know 
the profession of the people who are buried here. Well, funny enough, just off, on a tangent then, nothing really to do with death. You know, I used to talk about the symbolism and, and the kind of things. You know, we live in a world now, some might argue, is less symbolic. You know, art doesn't necessarily reflect religion. Religion itself doesn't seem as, you know, as personal in society anymore. Do you think we're going to see less of these kind of monuments moving forward? Oh, I think so, yes. Things are things are moving to uh, much more plainness. Uh, actually, one of my, <laughs> possibly my favourite monument is on the east side, on the other side, and it's of a, um, a, a modern, or relatively modern, sort of pop artist from the 1960s that anyone who knows about art will know, Patrick Caulfield. And he designed a tombstone which sits on his grave, and he... Um, etched into it, he he, he uh, had the letters D E A D punched. <laughs> That's what it says on the tin, um, and it's a great joke. Everybody enjoys it, but it's a work of art. I mean, Patrick Caulfield was a, you know, a legitimate artist. So we're, we're probably moving in that way, in that direction. Well, you talk about being, you know, remembered after people's memory of you. That, that that whole second death, and I, I like that idea entirely. You know, and it's it almost lends itself to you, you know, making an impression in your life and having people around you clearly cared and loved you and therefore won't ever forget you. Well, I, I do think if you, you know, I'm going to be pious now, but if you can do something in your life that leaves the world a bit better than it would have been without you doing it, that's great. I mean, my, my children don't work in the best paid jobs. They don't live in the swankiest places, but they all, you know, they work for charities or they work for, um, they work for human beings. They're not about making rich people even richer. They're about enriching those who need a bit of a hand. And I'm extremely proud of that. Um, I worked as a journalist and I tried to be factual, honest, to report stuff that was important rather than, you know, who's sleeping with who and who's had a boob job. I mean, that, that's journalism, it's tabloid, and, and people read it and well, fair enough. There's a, you know, there's a wish for it, but I never wanted to do it. So um, I, I, do, I do think that's a way of making your life maybe easier to leave if you've led a good life. Well, funny enough, because uh, this all started off as a selfish endeavour to make me feel better, almost get free counselling. I might have mentioned to you before, I also ran a few deaf cafes uh, where people, random people sign up to them in and around and you can just go to a pub or you go to a cafe and literally just talk about death. No, no grief, just about death, about the concept of it, about what people's different views of what happens. And actually, it's the first time I felt I was doing anything actually useful rather than, you know, venting my spleen about my views about death, that actually people turn up, random people turn up, and they felt better at the end of it, you know, hearing different, you know, different people's views about, you know, the ultimate end. I, I, you told me about those. I had not been aware of them. That's such a good idea. It is the great taboo, isn't it? The last taboo, t death, we don't mention it. But it's going to happen to us all. We're all concerned about it, to say the least. Some of us, like you, scared to death. <laughs> but we're, we're, you know, we may feign that we don't care, but we do. Well, out of interest in that, how many times do you think you do think about death? Your, sorry, your own demise. Every day. Yeah. And, oh, oh, every day, yeah. Uh, as I say, enhanced by this new grandchild 
my first, that's brought everything into focus, you know. Through her, I've realised my own, not only mortality, but imminent, you know, 72. And uh, smoked for I don't know how many years, 50, 60 years. Uh, You know, I'm not feeling as good as I did even five years ago. So, come in to... Lock the door. Um, I always say to my tour groups when I'm bringing them round, I'm sorry, folks, I can't switch on the light in here, it's very dark, because electricity hasn't been invented. <laughs> you know, because we're talking in the 1830s, so we've got a flashlight. Oh, excellent, we've got a nice bright yellow flashlight. Not particularly bright, oh. because there, there are um, um, light wells. Oh, wow, look at this place. So we're just basically a huge corridor. And what are these things on the left-hand side? These are called... These are Victorian dead people. The official title. <laughs> the, the official title, these are loculi. Oh. That's a Latin word which means niche. These were the Roman catacombs, again, to Victorian people who didn't know anything about, didn't visit Rome, I mean, didn't, didn't know anything about the Roman way of death, no photographs and stuff. Sensational. They absolutely love them. There are a thousand in here. Quite a few are empty. Quite a few are empty. And that's because the grave robbers got in ah. and stole them in the 1970s. And they weren't after their jewellery. They were after something much more precious to them. Because inside... Look, here's, here's a one that's starting to... So it's exposed the lead container, the oh, casket. The lead, in many instances, keeps out moisture and air. So when you open the lead, because it's, it's soft, it's, uh, you find inside a body. Not a skeleton, not a heap of rubble or whatever, a body. Mummified, uh, desiccated, whatever the word is, shriveled because the soft tissue is gone. But skin and hair and clothes, of course, and, and to the weirdos. The vampire hunters, the Satanists, you know, uh, th- who got in here, because the place was just locked up, nothing to stop them, in the 1970s to steal the bodies for their strange uh, rituals, far more precious than a bit of lead off a roof, a, a-, a body, not one, not a hundred, but 200 bodies were stolen. Um, from here and that is in fact just by the way how the how the, how the charity was formed Ch- children were playing with corpses that had been left behind one woman in particular was taken around like a doll by the girls who came in here because it's like a big adventure playground kids got in to play and found these corpses and uh, there are stories of the boys you know kicking the heads off male corpses and playing football so a group of local women in Highgate took the company to court and wrested control of the cemetery from them since they weren't doing anything just letting it fall down and it became the charity it is today so grave robbing directly led to the rebirth of, uh, of Highgate Cemetery that's absolutely fascinating funny enough we talk about the the bodies and we were talking before in, in the crypt about you know the surrealness of seeing a body is suddenly no longer like yourself. And that's something I've absolutely come to terms with, that the body is 
you know, this is going to sound quite religious, not meant to be at all, but the body is the vessel, you know, and of course you can, you know, there's social niceties that we can feel that parts of us don't look quite right or whatever, but it, it should be remembered. It's literally just carrying you around because you're sentient being your brain, your, and then this nameless thing that people call a soul, something that makes you feel different to everything else. Now I'd be, you know, quite happy for my brain to be in a jar or, you know, simulated in some kind of computer, you know, if it meant I had that, a feeling that it was me, and B it lived on. Is that something that you would interest you at all? Yeah. So, in other words, you're doing what they claim Walt Disney did all those years ago. One of the earliest people to investigate cryogenics, and when he died, I think in 1966. So the urban legend goes, he had himself frozen for when the cure to what he died of, lung cancer. Uh, would be found and he could be brought back to life. No, 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 no. Um, oh, no. I mean, as I say, the idea of of, of um, um, artificially extending your life, of bringing you back at age 72, you know. Uh, oh, no. Uh, I, I don't see that at all. I, At the moment, I believe that when we go, we go and that's it. We, we, we live on in our children. Even now, with my grandchild, I can see things that my daughter did that she's she's now doing and my daughter did them because i did them um so you do live on but not not in the physical but in you know in the spiritual and that's enough for me going back to your your, your role here as you say you know you volunteer you know do your friends family do they find it strange that you do this i bring them all up i'm a real bore <laughs> i'm a real bore and, uh, you know, people go, what do I want to see? look around a cemetery? And then you come and you bring them in a place like this, surrounded by 800 Victorian dead people, and you tell them the stories. And uh, uh, you, they love it. People, you go, look at our reviews. I mean, the yeah. people love it because it is so special. It is a beautiful place. It's landscaped. It isn't random. Uh, people think it's a big field. With, with It isn't. You know, there are mausoleums. There are crypts. You saw mm -hmm. this is a Roman Catholic. So it's a special place to visit. And when the stories come out, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm always asked, are there ghosts? And I say, well, I've never seen any, but, but, but our, uh, we have a grave digger, professional grave digger, Victor. His father was the grave digger before. So there's a 60-year continuity. And he, oh, gosh, yes, there are ghosts. Yeah, he's seen ghosts. Well, you see, we discussed this uh, a little bit before we started recording. If there were ghosts around, I'd be the, probably the happiest person on earth. You just know then that there's one chance, one chance in a million that you will survive I mean, whatever form past your death. So you say you've never experienced any ghostly presence here? No. But this morning when I met you, when you arrived, I was talking to one of my fellow volunteers, Terry, who, who's here, very sober man, was a prison warder, I think, as, you know, a, 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 not a man, you know, given to flights of fantasy. And wasn't he telling us he had seen a ghost? He was saying uh, that it was impossible for this uh, young girl, I think he said, that she was dressed in um, more old clothes than modern clothes, running across his periphery late at night, and he went to check the gate. The gate was closed, and there was, as, as he says, there was no way of anyone getting in and out. Well, that's what his experience is. Victor has seen things he can't explain. Um, many, many things over 30 years, as you might imagine. So, um, 
the fact that I haven't seen them, I'm not going to denounce them. You know, it could well be that there are these things, there are more things, you know, in, on heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And so um, it's, um, it's, a, it's, an, it's an ongoing project, really. Well, John, a final, a final question for you to something, and I think we already know the answer to this from one of your earlier conversations, but um, we always ask, you know, if you, had to, if you had to pick a way to go, you know, how would you want it to be? Well, my father and my cousin both died of heart attacks. My father sat up in bed, uh, clutched his heart and fell back. That was it. My lovely cousin Norman had taken the dog for a walk, came back, took the dog out of his harness, was sitting on the, on the city and just keeled over. That's uh, how I'd like to go. And of course, where would I like to go on to from there? Well, it's going to be here. I'm going to end up here. And that's a comfort too, Phil, to know where you are. I'm going to, I'm looking now, actually. I've been looking around at places that are available, choose my own resting place, last resting place. And that's a comfort, you know. I mean, some people think, well, that's a bit spooky. You know, you might hasten the end. I don't think so at all. And I know what a lovely place this is. It's only going to go on getting more and more people enthused about it as more and more people visit it. Um, it'll be the greatest cemetery in the country forevermore and and it's been one of the greatest parts of my life so um where else could i possibly go